Um, we're going to be in the book of Luke today, Luke chapter 1. I'd love for you to turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible with you, then uh, there should be one right in front of you in the pew there. You can pick one of those up, and uh, it's the same version that I'll be using. It'll also be on the screen, so you can see it here. And I want to tell you something right from the very beginning. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Christmas season is here. Y'all aware of that? Like, it's Christmas month, right? And so we start celebrating around, right, you know, around this time of year, we start to think about Christmas. And I just want to kind of get a poll to see where we are with you and the, the audience that we have today, group we have today, congregation that's here. So how many of you are, are listening to Christmas music? Like in the car, you got Christmas music playing, all right? Now let me ask you this question. How many of you were listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? Ooh, well, look at that. All right. How many of you say no? Thanksgiving's the day. It's after Thanksgiving. All right. I see those hands. Some very energetic, like never before Thanksgiving. How many of you have not started listening to it yet? We call you Scrooge. That's what we call you. All right. So not quite listening to it yet. All right. In my house, Eli's one is like, it's not even close to Christmas yet. We're still a month away. Luke is wanting to listen to Christmas music in October. So we, we have different kind of things. All right. How many of you have already decorated the house for Christmas? Your house is decorated. How many of you? That was the plan this weekend and it hasn't happened yet. All right. I see that. All right. How many of you are anybody here done with your Christmas shopping? Oh, I see a hand over there. What does that mean, Casey? Casey just gave me a, I don't know what that, all right. In the first service, uh, Jerry Garrett raised his hand that he was done, and Jill looked at him like he was crazy, like, no, you're not. All right. How many of you have not started Christmas shopping yet? All right, all right, that's good. How many of you have already watched a Christmas movie sometime around? All right. Any, how many of you are Hallmark Christmas movie people? I see. Those hands, it's the same plot every movie. You realize that, right? All right. Just making sure you know that. All right. But a few years ago, um, they did a survey. A couple of years ago, they did a survey to determine people's favorite Christmas movies. And so what I want to do this morning, I was going to, I want to give you the top three according to that poll, that survey. Then I'm going to see just kind of where we are, who's, uh, which movie you like best. So just take all three of these in and then I'll come back and ask you the question, see where we are. We'll compare it to first service and see who's cooler. Okay. And so here we go. The first movie that was at the top of the list for favorite Christmas movies was this one. All right. You'll shoot your eye out, right? Red Rider, BB gun. How many of you have seen, at least seen a Christmas story? All right. If you haven't, you apparently don't have TBS in your house because they played it every day, all the time for a long time. All right. Second one on the list was this one. Christmas Vacation, the Griswold. Some of you have seen Christmas Vacation. All right. And then the third one was this for the nostalgic ones on us. It's a wonderful life. All right. How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? All right. So let's go through and vote. Those are your three choices. Uh, you may have other choices out there. Those are your three for this particular contest. All right. We're going to take the poll results. We'll send them to Washington. I don't know what they'll do with them. All right. So first of all, how many of you is Christmas Story your favorite movie? Christmas Story. Oh, we got Look at that few. People aren't as just, I appreciate that, that enthusiasm for it, alright? Alright? Secondly, how many, uh, Christmas Vacation? How many Christmas Vacation fans? 
All right, I see those hands, all right. What about It's a Wonderful Life, all right, sentimental people there. Jen, you only get one hand, I'm sorry, all right. Two hands, all right. So it looks like Christmas Vacation, It's a Wonderful Life. First service was 98.9%, It's a Wonderful Life, and then marginal for the other two. Now, we all have not only those Christmas movies that are popular, that everybody knows that we love, my guess is we probably all got like one of those old classics that we like more than everybody else. And try to convince the world that it is the greatest movie in the history of mankind. Okay, I have one of those at Christmas that I've tried to get my kids to watch and they have refused to watch it all the way through. They do not understand the magic of it and it breaks my heart every Christmas. It is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. (laughs) Anybody here seen Emmett Otter's Jug Band? I see those hands. God, God loves you. Yes, he does. I promise. How many of you have never seen Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas? You are deprived people. It's about, it's a retelling of the classic tale of the gift of the Magi by O. Henry, set with Jim Henson puppets on a lake in a cold place. It is unbelievable. All right. <laughs> Go look it up. It's, it's on Hulu or Netflix or you can find it pirated on YouTube probably. All right. It's amazing. All right. But there's another movie that did make the top three that I really do like a lot and that a lot of people like. And it's the story, kind of unbelievable story, of an eight-year-old boy that gets left at home while his family all goes on vacation, right? Home alone, all right? And so, I mean, they have to spend like 20 minutes. John Hughes, who wrote the movie, he's the guy that wrote all the teenage comedy movies. Like, he, he, uh, they have to convince you that this could actually happen. Right. They have to spend like 15 to 20 minutes just setting up the fact that the family could actually leave an eight year old at the house by himself for Christmas while they all go not next door, not to the next town, not to the next state. They go to I remember where they go. Paris, like not Tennessee, like France, like France, way over there in Europe somewhere. Right. Like, it goes away, and so you have this whole story built up. Now, how many of you have seen Home Alone? All right, let me see. This is the most hand-raising in a Baptist church in a long time right here. Right? How many of you have seen All right, so you've seen that. How many of you have seen it more than once? All right? Right, now, we see it almost every Christmas. Now, here's the thing. When you watch it the second time, it's not the same movie as the first time. Now, the movie hasn't changed, but you know what's coming. In fact, that whole first part when they're trying to get to the point where they leave him, you just want to fast forward that part to get to the point where he's throwing paint cans at the robbers. Right? Let's just fast forward to get to the good parts. And you forget sometimes when you watch it the second time, you're like, oh, I forgot this part wasn't very good. Like, And it's like ten minutes long. We have to wait through it, wait through it, wait through it. And then you're like, oh, now we're to the good part. And you get familiar with it, and it loses a little bit of its excitement. When you watch something for the second time, when you hear something for the second time, when you think about something for the second, the third, the fifth, the tenth, you become so familiar with it, but you may not get all the intricacies, you may not think about it as much, and familiarity can sometimes do damage to your enjoyment of what you're watching. It's not just movies, it happens in other areas of our lives. Familiarity often does bad things for us. It makes us take things for granted. It makes us stop examining them. It makes us stop noticing them. We tend to celebrate less than we used to. 
It robs us of our wonder. I mean, just imagine that you moved into a brand new neighborhood and then your first day there, you think I'm going to walk around the neighborhood and you walked out of the door and you walk around the corner and on the second corner you make, there is this most unbelievable community rose garden. And it's just beautiful. You see it and you think, man, I've never seen anything like that in a neighborhood before. And you think, man, I want to go home and tell my family about it. We got, I got to go tell them we need to go on a walk so we can see this. It's like this newly discovered environment. But by day 30, it's just the community rose garden in your neighborhood. It's no longer the most amazing thing you've ever seen. There may not be a more familiar story in the entire world than the birth of Jesus Christ. There may not be a story more well known than that story. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will let our familiarity with the story cause us to take it for granted, to cause us to stop examining it, to cause us to quit noticing things about it, and to prevent us from celebrating it like we once did. We'll want to just fast forward to the parts that we like the most. Or we'll just want to skip around and think about the things that we want to think. And not take in the fullness of the story. In his uh, Christmas devotional, Paul Tripp writes, Sadly, many of us aren't gripped by the stunningly magnificent events and truths of the birth of Jesus anymore. Many of us are no longer gripped by wonder as we consider what this story tells us about the character and the plan of God. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, we're starting a series of messages called Comfort and Joy. And we're going to talk about some of the aspects of the Christmas story that we might overlook or that we might forget. And I want us to try to look at it with new eyes, with fresh vision. Now we're calling it Comfort and Joy, and that actually is a phrase from a song, right? So what song is that from? God rest you, Mary Jimmin, right? I, I know I ask you that, and some of you start singing it, trying to get back to the front part of it to figure out which song it is, because we've just become so familiar with it, we don't think about it. But that song in itself is an amazing description of what happened at Christmas. God rest you, Mary gentlemen, let none of you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's hand when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now, when's the last time you sang that song and really thought about the rescue that happened in the birth of a Savior from Satan's grasp because of the sin in our lives? We want to stop over the next few weeks and just think about what does the story really say to us? We're going to look at specific characters and think about the nuances and the plot twist and the helpful practical insights that come from this story. Let me tell you, one of the first things that I know from this passage of Scripture that we think about and we're going to talk about today, and when you think about all of the description of Jesus' birth, one of the things that I know for sure is if I were writing the story, this is not how I would have written it. We would not have come up with this. We would not have written it this way. You and I would have chosen different things. I mean, think about some of the crazy things in this story that we just think of, oh yeah, that's what happened. I mean, you think about no room in the inn. That he's laid in a feed trough for animals. You ask God, why was it so difficult for Joseph and Mary, who seem to be all alone, on their own, with nobody else there really to help them? Why, God, would you send your son into such humble beginnings? Why were the first people you told the people that were on the late shift with the shepherds? 
The first dignitaries to hear about it were foreign kings, not kings that were seeking you. Now, what's that whole deal, God? Why would you put this in there that after Jesus was born, there's this mass execution because of the fear in the land? I mean, you think just of the plot twist in the midst of this story. There's an unexpected, scandalous pregnancy. There's a husband-to-be who is considering leaving his wife-to-be. And then there's the setting of a manger. Smelly manger. One of my favorite things to do with my kids, and I mention this, I think, every year, is that when they're at a certain age, we read the best Christmas pageant ever. And when I love that book, it's, it was a TV movie when I was growing up, but I love that book because what it does is it brings in a perspective on the Christmas story from people that have never heard it. These kids, the Herdman clan. And when things get to certain points, they're like, well, why did that happen? Well, why didn't he do something about that? Well, why did God let that happen? And it almost sounds sacrilegious when we first hear it, but then in our minds we're like, you know, if I was writing the story, it would have been different. There would have been prestige. And privilege. And power. We would have had Jesus born into a royal family. Or at least like Moses adopted into one very early. So he could be in a place to effect change. So he could bring about real change in the world. I wouldn't have had him born in the backwoods of nowhere. With nobody else around to see it but some shepherds. Because the truth is we want our lives to be like that. We get five year, ten year plans. And nobody in your ten year plan thinks you know what? I really want to have some difficulty around year three. Some real hard times. When we plan privilege and prestige, we don't think about the fact that our five-year plans rarely work. Our ten-year plans almost never happen. I'm not saying it's bad to have goals, but sometimes when a 20-something-year-old tells me about their ten-year plan, I just chuckle a little bit. Can I get an amen in the house from the older ones here? I'm not saying if you amen, you're older, but... I am, all right? I've told this story before. I just think it illustrates this perfectly. Um, Susan and I were married. We were, we were very mature, 22 and 21-year-olds, and uh, got married and went on our honeymoon to Hawaii, and we were sitting in Hawaii around the pool and said, on our 10-year anniversary, we'll be right back here. We ain't been back to Hawaii. <laughs> you know how many years we've been married? 19. It'll be 20 this summer, right? You know where we were on our 10-year wedding anniversary? A Wiggles concert. (laughs) Chugga, chugga, big red car, all right? That was not in the plans the 10 years previous, right? Like, you can make plans. There's a way that seems right in the heart of man, but is not. We did that because Eli really loved the Wiggles. (laughs) He was a Wiggles fan, all right? So what do we do when life goes off track? You see, I think that's part of the reason the Christmas story is the way it is. Because God knew our lives were going to be consistently met with things we didn't expect. And how we handle them is shown even in this earliest example of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 26 and following. Here's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time today. What do we do when uncertainty reigns in our lives? Because uncertainty reigned in the life of one of the key figures of this story and how she responded to that uncertainty is a mighty testimony to how we should as well. Luke 1, starting in verse 26, says, 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, quickly right here, just a couple of things. First of all, we see this is an unusual thing happening here. We know that because the angel Gabriel is there. Most of the time in Scripture, when angels appear, they are unnamed. When they are named, it is a particular thing for us to notice. And this name is Gabriel one of the archangels of God. So this isn't just an angel who is coming to give a message to a girl. This is one of God's top lieutenants, one of the top angels, one of the highest uh, angels in heaven that is coming to tell the story. And he doesn't go to the palace in Jerusalem or to the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Rome, which was the center of the earth at that time. He goes to a backwoods town in the middle of a backwoods province of a backwoods nation. Now, I grew up in West Tennessee, so I don't know the backwoods places of here like I do West Tennessee. But this is like God showing up to announce the most important thing in the history of the world in Rowellen or Arp or Gold Dust or Frog Jump, Tennessee. Okay? And I've been to all those places. I grew up in Rowellen, all right? And it's like they showed up there to a girl named Mary. Next verse. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting that could be. Now, I want us to think just for a minute about this particular girl in this particular moment. We don't know how old she was. Most people think she was somewhere in her mid to late teen years, 16, 17, 18 years old. She is there. She is. It's a normal day from all we can tell. This is nothing that gave her idea two days beforehand, eight days beforehand, six years beforehand, that this was just a normal day, run of the mill day for this girl in Nazareth. When all of a sudden an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, shows up. And the phrase it uses there is it says she was deeply troubled by this statement. Now, just on its surface, when you read the statement, it shouldn't be a troubling thing. Favored woman, the Lord is with you. That sounds like it should be comforting. But her life, she realizes in that moment, is getting wrecked, changed, different. This was not on Mary's five-year plan. And we know she had one because she was already engaged to be married, already working through the process of what that meant and what a life with Joseph was going to look like. And when an angel shows up, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it's not going to be the same. Nowhere in Scripture does an angel show up and go, you know what, just keep doing what you're doing. Everything's cool. Like it's always something different. And the phrase here, deeply troubled, means that in the pit of her stomach, at the very lowest levels of who she was, she was distressed. It's that sinking feeling, that getting hit with news you never expected feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's walking into class and the teacher saying, now get out your paper, we got a test today, and you knew nothing about it. It's getting a call from your child's teacher It's getting a call from a doctor, from a parent who's telling you that an illness has come and there's no cure for it. It's getting a call that something's gone on at work 
or getting a message in an email that says that your services are no longer needed here. Or we've changed your position or your title or your responsibilities. That's getting a notice that a dear friend is gone. That your marriage is no more. That your parents' marriage is no more. That your kids' marriage is no more. That your child is sick. That your spouse is sick. The word used here is for the deepest level of human emotions. We, we often hear this story and we think uh, about this calm, serene Mary. And even one of the most famous Christmas carols that we will sing at candlelight on Christmas Eve night, silent night, gives this impression that the night was just peaceful as could be and that nothing was gone wrong. But when you read the story, you realize that what we have in this moment is a terrified teenage or young lady, young adult woman. She's scared to death, deeply distressed. What's happening here? And all those moments in your life when you have felt that deep distress, that is where Mary is. Next verse. Then the angel told her, don't be afraid. Be not dismayed. Don't be afraid. Not to mention that part of the reason she gets scared to death, because it tells us in Scripture that when an angel shows up, he always says, don't be afraid, is because angels are frightening figures. They're scary. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so as he says, all right, listen, Mary, it's not bad news. The Lord's with you. It's good news. You're going to have a child. And when you have a child, God's going to bless him and he's going to be the son of the most high. And the Lord God will reign through him forever. Through David, it is going to be an amazing, amazing thing. Now, here's what's interesting about what plays out over the rest of this. This is not the first time in scripture that a birth has been announced to a couple or to a person. And the first two didn't go so well with the responses. The first one was Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis. And they were told they were going to have a baby. And what did Sarah do when she found out? She laughed. And not like, oh, that is so awesome, God. It was like, yeah, right. Now, here's the issue, right? She was a little advanced in years. And if you were told at 90 years old and your husband was 100 that you were going to have a child, you would laugh too. You would laugh to keep from crying is what you would do. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? You'd laugh about it. The other one was Zachariah and Elizabeth. You remember Zacharias told just a few, a little bit before this. He doesn't believe it either. He doesn't, why would I do that? Why would I name him that? Remember what happens to him? Shuts his mouth so that he can't speak until the baby's born. Now listen, Mary is, of all of those people, this is what's cool about this. Abraham had been following the Lord for years. Zechariah was in charge of helping people to find the Lord. They ought to know how to respond to it. But sometimes you get so close to the situation that you don't see what God's really doing. And what's great about the rest of this story 
is that Mary was the least likely of those three to respond correctly, and yet she did. Now, here's the thing. It says right off the beginning, she says, all right, I got a question for you. <laughs> like, I'm just going to lay this out there. This is verse 34. Just going to lay this out there without end. That's great. That's awesome. But um, here's the issue. I'm not married. I haven't had any relationships with a man. I've had no sexual relations with a man. Uh, how's that going to happen? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth even has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. Mary says, listen, I'm all on board, but that's impossible. You know, sometimes we talk about things on... Sunday mornings and I bring up issues that could be important, that could be important, but might not be life altering things that are happening that are discouraging or troublesome in your life. But sometimes in your lives, you hit a moment when you have a situation that can completely change who you are. And they're not always good. Last night, we started our um, Christmas devotionals with our kids. We um, do that every December. We love doing that. Our kids love doing it. Um, we started doing it last night. And in the midst of that, as we were talking about things, um, we found ourselves again telling our story to our kids. Now, many of you have heard this. Some of you are new and haven't heard this. I won't go into full details, but um, there was a very difficult moment in Susan and I's life when um, we were uh, in Texas. I was finishing up seminary. I've been in school for seven years to be a pastor and nobody had called. When you're at a South like seminary and you finish up, you give your resume to the, the people that get it to other churches and nobody had called. Our, my resume had been sent to all kinds of churches and then churches started to call and we were like, God, we will, we really will go anywhere, but those are not what we had in mind. Like Twin Falls, Idaho and Clovis, New Mexico. There really weren't any kind of prospects happening out there. We would have gone there if that's where God was calling us, but we felt for sure that's not what God was doing. We didn't know what the direction was. And in the midst of all of that, Susan and I had decided around that time of our lives that it was time to start trying to have a family that was not working. We went to a doctor and the doctor told us that we had zero percent chance to have kids. And you want to talk about a punch to the gut. You walk into a doctor's office and they look at you and Susan and I are both people that had desperately wanted kids. And we we felt like that God was calling us to have kids. And we felt like that was a part of our calling and our life together. And the doctor looks at you and we're like, so what is the So like you're saying it's not going to happen. Like what percent chance are you talking about? And he said, zero. Zero. Without medical intervention, zero. You talk about. Deeply distressed. And what are you planning, Lord? Like, this was not what we had in mind. Like, no church calling. No children. Susan had to quit her job. She was teaching because we trusted that the Lord was going to give us a new one. She had sent the stuff in to quit. And we're in the middle of June, late June, and we still don't have a place to go. Just remember in that moment, asking the Lord, what are you doing? What's going on? And it's tough. That may not be your situation at all. It may be something else. But don't ever hear me act like that there aren't real situations in life that are really tough. 
And in the midst of those, how do we respond? In the midst of those, what do we do? Her question was simply, well, how's that going to happen, God? I've not been with a man. And the reason she's asking that question is because she realized that becoming pregnant before she is married puts her life in danger, literally. Unmarried pregnant women could be killed in their society. And so this isn't just, man, this is an inconvenience, Lord. This is, I could die. Look at verse 37 and 38, because I just love these two verses. Verse 37, right before that, the angel says to her, For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And in verse 38, Mary responds. And this isn't a desperate situation. In a desperate situation, not knowing what she's going to do, where she's going to turn, what's going to happen. She says to the Lord a prayer that you can use over and over again. In desperate situations, you find yourself. This is a model example of how you respond in faith to that. You realize that nothing is impossible and you simply say, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. Basically, she says, in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of fear, I'm going to respond in faith and say, Lord, I am willing to do whatever. Yes, Lord. Now, obviously, our story turned out a little differently than the doctors said. We have four kids. That's more than zero. I don't know if you know that, right? And it is an amazing journey that God led us to to that point. But part of it came when we simply said to him on multiple occasions. Before we had Eli, God gave us um, three people in our lives who had dreams specifically that we were going to have a child. In the midst of the most difficult times of our lives, they came to us and said, I just had this vivid dream. You had a child. Before we had Luke, there was a moment when um, we didn't know if, the, if Eli was it, if this was a one-shot deal, if Eli, if God had said, you know what, Eli, we're going to give you Eli, and, and he's, we had had some other things happen that um, the Lord had not blessed us with a child. And we literally called on the story of Abraham and Isaac and said, Lord, if this is our Isaac, we will lay it down to you, another child, and we will be content with what we have. And about two weeks later, three weeks later, we found out that we were going to have another child. God gave me some very specific prayer, um, dreams, visions about having a girl, three different ones with three different females in my life, my mom, Susan's mom, Susan, and our little girl before Maddie was born. Ava, we had these, just an amazing understanding that Ava is God's child for us. And you know what? That phrase, nothing is impossible for God, is not just a phrase on a scripture on a page for us. It is reality. And that's not just us. He's done that for many of you in this room. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that difficulty, even if that healing never came, even if that moment never came, saying to the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Here's the reason she could say that. It's because she didn't know what was coming. She didn't know what was happening. She didn't know what was coming ahead of her. But she knew this. God had spoken it. And what he has spoken is true. And when you don't understand what God is doing, remember what God 
has spoken. When you don't understand what God is doing, remember that God has spoken. And one of the most important things you can understand from this Christmas story, because of the child that came through Mary, is that God loves you and cares for you. In fact, there's places over and over in Scripture when he has written, when he has said what he feels about you, that you are a child of God, you are God's workmanship, you are totally and completely forgiven if you are in Christ, that you are God's child, that you are a friend of Jesus, that you are a brother of Jesus, that you are a whole new person with a whole new life, that you are the place where God's Spirit lives, that you are totally and completely forgiven forgiven, that you are created in God's likeness, that you are a citizen of heaven. And then in Romans 5, 8, that you are greatly loved. And whatever else is happening in your life, you can know for sure those things about God. And in the midst of that, you just say to him, whatever you ask me to do, I will do. So here's the question, no matter where you are, if it's difficult, if it's easy, the question for you today that I want you to think about is this. Are you willing? Willing to do whatever God asks without question. Do you notice that Mary didn't put any stipulations on this? She didn't say, you know what, God, if you'll assure me that my family won't leave me, I'll go forward with this. Hey, God, if you'll assure me that that Joseph will be okay with this, because she didn't even have that assurance. I'll go forward with it. Hey, hey, God, I'll tell you what. If you will assure me that the people in this community won't say bad things about me, then I'll go forward. She didn't do any of that. She didn't bargain. She just says, yes. You know, I thought about this over Thanksgiving uh, holiday. At Thanksgiving, I was at Susan's family's house. Um, there are three preachers in that house um, and then a music worship leader. So there's lots of church talk that happens there. I was talking to Susan's brother, David, my brother-in-law, David. David's a pastor in Mississippi. We were talking about, as you do when your preacher's around, you talk about what you're preaching on, what's coming up, what's happening. We were talking about this, this idea that we've gotten over the last couple of years that we just realized that, that brings this story and the heartache these two people, Mary and Joseph, went through on their journey a little bit more. Um, now, where was Jesus born? Tell me that. Where was he born? In a manger in what town? Bethlehem. Good. I asked the first service that and they looked at me and I was like, you know, the answer to this question. All right. You don't sing old little town of Jericho. You say old little town of Bethlehem. You know this. You know this question, right? So born in Bethlehem. Now, why were they in Bethlehem? Why were they there? Census, right? And the census, everyone was required to go where? Their hometown. Now, this wasn't Mary's hometown because she's in Nazareth of Galilee. So whose hometown is this? Joseph. So Joseph goes back to Bethlehem. Now, let me ask you, what percentage of Joseph's family would have had to return to Bethlehem? All of them, right? Like they're all called back. It's not just Joseph and Mary that are called back. It's all of Joseph's family. So why didn't they have a place to stay? Right? If Joseph... if On those trips, what happened is you stayed with family. Extended family, Joseph's family would have been taken a caravan back. Now, perhaps, this is a little bit of speculation because it doesn't tell us, perhaps Joseph was the only surviving member of his entire family. But the likelihood of that is very, very small. No brothers, no father. He was probably among many. And what that tells me is these two people were completely ostracized from their family. And yet she knew that was coming. And that day and time, when you found this out, this wasn't a thing where she goes, oh, 
They're going to ostracize? They're going to push me out of the community? She knew. And she says, let it be to me as you have said. I'm willing to do whatever is required of me. You know, maybe a better question is not, are you willing, but how willing are you? Because even like you're talking about the day of extravagant giving next week and we say, all right, we want, are you willing to give? And you're like, yeah, man, I'll give. I have no problem. I'll give this amount. And then if God says, well, what about doubling that? You go, ooh, I don't know if I'm that willing. Right? Like, God, I'll be glad to serve you whatever the call is. I want you for a lifetime missionary. And I don't know. I mean, I was saying whatever you wanted me to do when I could still be a businessman and make lots of money in America. That's what I meant, God. What are you willing to do? Let's pray together.